Hey, Angel, how was stargazing live? Crazy. It was really, really crazy. So I had a lot of fun because, as I'm going to tell in a moment, I was observing for my program, but at the same time trying to help in the craziness of, mm. the, of the TV shows. Ah, and that reminds me that as it happened during your birthday, yes. I have a little present for you. Oh! For you. Oh, thank you. Okay. Please. Very fancy gift wrap paper. <laughs> it's very fancy, yes. I, see. I, I I only get for you the best of the best. Only the best of the best. It, it is it is a white paper, by the way, everyone. A very so, fancy gift wrap paper. Uh, yeah. Sorry, I forgot my gift wrap <laughs> at home. Should we take a photo? Uh, do you want a photo? Yes. Let's take a photo yes, for the... Let's go to take a photo. I should have been ready for this. Sorry. <laughs> smile. Say cheese. Cheese. Another one. Good. Okay, <laughs> can you please open it? I, I will open it, yes. No time to waste. So I think you are going to to enjoy it. Although I have the feeling that you might have that Ooh, book. Oh, I do have this book. But did you open it? <gasps> oh my god! That was very loud. Ah, to Kirsten, you'll be the first Aussie Kirsten, not the next Brad Kirsten. Oh my god! So uh, happy birthday! <laughs> Thank you. Okay, okay. Take I'm it good. easy. Take it, take it easy. <laughs> I can't guarantee that I'm going to be able to talk probably for the rest of the episode. It'll just be like little random just noises. I'm not sure if, <sighs> if our listeners are understanding what is happening. What happened, Kirsten? You got Brian Cox to sign my Emi Dreaming book. And and he said, because on my on my Twitter handle, um, in my bio rather, in my description, I claim that I'll be the next Aussie Brian Cox. And Brian Cox said I'll be the first Aussie Kirsten. Yes. Yeah, that is good. I'm really, I really knew that you were going to enjoy that. This is so good. That means Brian Cox has heard my name and is talk and wrote down my name. Oh my god. Oh. Okay. Okay. I think we should get into the episode. Now. Please let's go to do it. <laughs> Hello, I'm Angel Lopez Sanchez, and I'm Kirsten Banks, the first Aussie Kirsten Banks, and we are <laughs> and we are the, the scientists. scientists. <laughs> Okay, I think I've calmed down now. No, you are calm down. Okay, we have to stop for some few minutes just for Kirsten to relax, yep. breathe. And I've sent a photo of the of the signing to my best friends and my parents and my boyfriend, and uh, and they're all very happy. I, I said to my my best friends actually got me a dressing gown with my Twitter handle on the back of it, which I thought that was the best present. They are now equal first. Oh, equal first. Equal first. Equal first. Okay, well, that is good enough. I can never not be happy about a good dressing gown. Yeah, that's all right. That's a good thing. Okay, I should start getting some of those things also for me. Yes, you should. They are the best. Good. Okay, well, let's go to start really with the episode with yes. some feedback. Some feedback. Well, last episode, we asked you guys to try and work out where the barycenter of the Earth-Moon system is. So the center of rotation for the Earth and the Moon. And I have figured it out. I've, I've done some maths, although my maths was a little bit off to start off with. Because when I was doing this calculation, I, when I searched for the mass of the Moon... Google told me it was 7.35 times 1022. 
not 10 to 22. as in the power. So um, I got the same answer as the center of the earth. Which we knew is, that, that it, it was not right. right. No, no, it didn't seem right at all. Like, mm. and, and that is what I ask you. Mm, have a look again to the yeah. calculation because it seems that it's something weird there. Yes, because if, if it was the center of the earth where the barycenter is, then we wouldn't have tides. Exactly, one it's, of the reasons. Well, it's, it just makes no sense. I then double-checked and it is meant to be 10 to the 22. Good. As in a power. And the center of rotation for the Earth-Moon system is about 5,000 kilometers from the center of the Earth. And because the radius of the Earth is about 6.3 thousand kilometers, it is well within the center of the Earth, as expected. Okay, that's that's very good. More or less, that is the answer I got Googling it. <laughs> so, following Wikipedia, the very center of the Earth-Moon system, it is around 4,671 kilometers from the Earth center. Mm. More or less 5,000. More or less 5,000, yeah. as you Give or take 400 kilometers. <laughs> um, also, to give a bit more perspective, that is uh, 1,700 kilometers below the Earth's surface. on right. average. So it is within the Earth, mm-hmm. but it is not in the center of the Earth. No. And that point moving around the interior of the Earth, that is also what uh, you very well said, it is inducing the tides mm-hmm. on Earth. Making our Earth moon. wobble. Mm-hmm, exactly. Excellent. What, and what else? We do actually have a question. Do we have questions? Ooh. We do have a question. Uh, this question comes from one of our lovely followers, Juan. Uh, and he asks, white dwarfs have no fusion. So would one orbiting a more massive star where there's no mass transfer, so the white dwarf isn't taking mass away from the companion star, would it be considered a planet? We can give a short answer. We well, can also give a longer answer as well. I'm going to, as I'm feeling about, that I'm going to be talking about many other things in this episode, I'm going just to give the short answer, no. No, no. And I will give the long answer. And you please give the long answer. So the long answer is, uh, well, let's talk about what a white dwarf actually is. A white dwarf is the remnant core of a dead star. So yes, it does not go through fusion. It's about the same mass as the sun within about the volume of the Earth. So it's a very, very dense ball of mass. So there's no fusion, so there's no source of energy. So you're correct in saying that there's no fusion here. But um, the reason why it actually stays stable most of the time, and which we'll come back to that a little bit later, Mm -hmm. the reason why it stays stable is uh, not because it's supported by heat, but instead by a really fun thing called electron degeneracy pressure. Now... Three of those words I understand individually. Luckily, I also understand all three of them together because uh, electron degeneracy pressure, it comes out from the Pauli exclusion principle. So we've got a bit of quantum mechanics happening here. Which is very important for astronomy. We have mentioned some few times the importance of quantum mechanics yes. for understanding astrophysical phenomena. Indeed, indeed. So well, I'll go a little deep into this just because this is good for my study as well. Yep. <laughs> um, so... An electron is a spin-half particle. Spin-half doesn't mean it spins on half its axis. It's nothing to do with actual physical spin, but it's just a, a thing we call, we give a uh, property to these particles. So it's a spin-half particle. But in this case, it refers to the Pauli ex- exclusion principle where no two half-integer spin particles can have the same quantum state. Mm-hmm. So just also for putting in a general context, the mm. half-spin particles are also called fermions. Yes. Yes. And that we have to distinguish them from the bosons, which have 
an integer Inter number, yeah. number spin. That's right. They're a lot easier to deal with. Yeah. Sometimes, <laughs> sometimes, sometimes, sometimes not. Sometimes not. Sometimes not. Um, so they almost have a different energy level since they're in different quantum states. So particular quantum states will have different energy levels based on the spin half particles. So if they're squeezed in too closely, the exclusion principle requires them to have different energy levels and it's the requirement for energy that makes this pressure. So if you have them so close together, some of them will be in lower energy states, but others will have to be in much higher energy states, which causes this pressure going on here. Mm -hmm. Yes. And it's a, it's a type of star, so no, it's not a planet. In white dwarf stars, it is that the electron degenerative pressure, the thing that is holding the star together. Yes, or holding the star out, rather, because the gravity is so strong that if it didn't have this de degeneracy pressure, rather, it would collapse. Exactly, yes. Mm. At the end, these are other kind of objects, but not planets. Not planets. Not planets. Okay. Planets are very, very different in the fact you have rocky planets like the Earth, or you have gas giants like Jupiter, but uh, no white dwarf planets. Yep. I think that the question is more coming from the idea that if you have a star and there is something else mm. that is moving around and still going back to the very center of the center of mass between those two objects, we still have the idea that if you have a star and you have a small thing, even though it is a dwarf star, a, yep. dwarf, a white dwarf star, mm. going around, and when I'm saying around, you can see me, but I'm doing something with my fingers saying, what in, <laughs> because that is not going to happen. So if you have a star and you have another white dwarf star, the mass of the white dwarf star still is going to be high enough mm. to be doing that the two of them, the two objects are going to be moving around the common center of gravity, which will be very, very likely in the space between the two objects, between yes. the two stars. In fact, probably closer to the white dwarf in more cases than none. It might happen, it yes. Might, it might happen. It might happen. It, but, um, it also depends on the characteristic of the different stars. You have a mm. red dwarf star mm. with low mass and a white dwarf star, for sure. They are going to be much closer to the, the white dwarf. And we should expect that there are many of those stars out there. Yes. Because many, many times the stars are just born or bind together by gravity and you have one, not one star, but some few stars, two stars, very common in the space. One of them, the more massive star, a bit more massive, but can be around one solar mass, mm. evolves and ended up its life releasing the material, the external layers forming the planetary nebula and the remnant is, is the white dwarf. Yeah. But the red dwarf star that is a companion that star has very, very, very long life. It does. They will... Well, both of them, white dwarfs and red dwarfs, will uh, almost outlive the, the universe. The universe at the moment, mm, for sure. At the moment. Mm. So that is why we will expect that uh, there will be a high fraction of objects that you have a white dwarf star and mm. a red dwarf star, although perhaps difficult to find observationally. Because yes, red dwarfs are very hard to find. And white dwarfs sometimes they also are. But you know what? White dwarfs are very interesting. Yes, they are. Because they have this mass limit, and I always butcher the name, but I'm going to try, the Chandraskaha. Chandraskaha. Chandrasekhar. That one. That is the name <laughs> that I have always used. Perhaps it is pronounced in Spanish, but, you know, Chandrasekhar. That mass limit is very important for cosmology and astrophysics and astronomy because... When a white dwarf reaches this mass limit, it's kind of like when you're blowing up a balloon 
There's a limit of how much air you can put into a balloon. There's a limit of how much mass you can put it into a dwarf, white dwarf star. And this mass, the Chandrasekhar mass, is at a 1.4 solar masses. When it gets that limit, same with the balloon, it pops. It explodes. It explodes. Mm-hmm. And because it's exploding with the same mass, every single time, this type 1A supernova will be the same brightness. So we can use it as a standard candle to measure the distance or the largeness of the universe. And the expansion of the universe too. And it was using type 1A supernova how we discovered in the last years of the 20th century hmm. that the expansion of the universe was not decreasing but accelerating. Yes. Needing to invoke to that mystery thing out there that we now call dark energy. That as a matter, we don't know what it is. Nope. So don't ask us. We'll just say we don't know. <laughs> we, don't, we don't know. We wish we, we, we will know, but we don't know yet. Not yet. Not yet. Okay. But don't jump too fast because we still have a lot of little thing for feedback to say. Because I would like to thanks again to some of our Spanish followers. Yes. Because they, oh. are, they, they are providing comments and being very nice with, with us, particularly to Jorge Bueno and also, of course, Victor Ruiz and the friends of Radio Skylab who again recommended us in their podcast. Thank you very much. Thank you. So it was so amazing. It was fun to know that uh, you are following us, you are listening to us, and it seems that it is easier for you to understand me talking with this very particular strong Spanish accent in English <laughs> than perfectly speaking English speaker, Christine. I, I could speak in more proper English if you would like. I don't know what accent that was, but what, I tried what? to do something proper. <laughs> That's fine. It is because you're enthusiastic and you're really doing that great. So don't worry for that. I have received the other feedback from the other part from our English speakers listeners saying, mm. hey, we can understand Kirsten very well, but sometimes you sound weird. <laughs> so we have a good balance for all of our followers. Yeah, then. We, we try. I try. We try. We, we try. try. We try. So thank you very much for that. Also to Juanjo C, who also said that he is also listening to us in following the recommendation from Radio Skylab. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. Soon we'll be up to millions of followers. Ah, yeah, yeah. Well, we are in episode 11 and we have not said that in a while. No, Good. we haven't. <laughs> we need to keep our ambitions high. Yes, ambition mm. high. Now that you are a very famous uh, astronomer known even by Brian Cox. Mm, I'm just where. We're tight now. Yeah, yeah. Going <laughs> Haven't had a conversation yet, but we're so tight. Going there. <laughs> okay, well, what's up? What's up? Yes, indeed. What is up? Ooh, I have an idea. You have an idea? I have an idea. Yeah, because I, I have not had the time to think about exactly which object we are going to be talking about. I think we should talk about the wonderful, magnificent Omega Centauri. Okay, yes, that is a really nice object in the southern sky. Mm. You can tell why I really like it, because we can see it quite well from here in Sydney. Yes, yes, uh, for sure, because it is very high in the sky, getting this time of the year, it will be very close to the zenith at around the beginning of the night. Mm -hmm. And since I heard that expression for you, it is, oh my God, Centauri. Yes. 
I think we should name it Oh My God Centauri because, oh my God, it has 10 million stars in it. It is an amazing object. No, I, I was going to say that since I heard that from you, sorry, I'm copying you and I'm mentioning that in my talks. That and, is totally fine. And, and everyone is laughing or enjoying when I say that. <laughs> so it's Oh My God Centauri. Because it, you, it's a foolproof plan. Yeah, yeah, you have to see it to realize that it is Oh My God. Mm. It is full of stars. Mm. Speaking of, I don't think we've actually mentioned what... It is yet. We, I think we have mentioned it briefly in a previous episode before, but Omega Centauri, just to remind you all, is a globular cluster in the constellation of the Centaur. And that is why it is called Omega Centauri. Mm-hmm. Also Omega, because you can actually see it with your naked eye. And it was classified as a star, the 24th brightest star in the constellation of Centaurus. I didn't actually know that. I knew you could see it with the naked eye, but I didn't actually know that that was the reason. That is Omega. Alpha Alpha is the brightest, Mm -hmm. Beta is the second brightest, Gamma, blah, 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 blah. The 24th, 24th, it is Omega. Ah, that is really, really cool. Okay, good. Good to know. I'm glad that it was Omega, so then we can make that joke of, oh my God, Centauri. Oh, good. (laughs) (laughs) And that object, the globular cluster, it is at uh, which distance? Around 16,000? 16,000 light years away, yes, and it's about 150 light years in diameter. It is in our Milky Way galaxy, Yes, but not in the spiral disk. That's right, it's in in the the halo. In the halo of the Milky Way, it's Mm. moving in a different way as uh, the rest of the stars and the gas is moving, Mm. where we found the majority of the globular cluster. Yes, probably why we can see it very well, actually. Yeah, it is one of the reasons, Also, although right now, it is still relatively close to the plane of the Milky Way mm. because the plane of the Milky Way is also crossing the yes. constellation of Centaurus and Crux that the other cross. It is in that same area of mm. the of the sky. Uh, for me, it is one of the most beautiful areas of the sky with Alpha, Beta, Centauri, Omega, Centauri, the other cross, and Carina with the great uh, nebula in Carina. Yes, only beautiful part same, of the sky. Only the same area of the sky, only visible from the southern hemisphere. Sorry. It's fine. But, I live here. It's fine. But, <laughs> but, I have seen Omega Centauri from Cordoba, from Spain, from the south of Spain. Ah, uh, well, it would have been very low, though. Very low, just some mm-hmm. few degrees over the horizon. <laughs> but you can spot it yep. when it is in the culmination. Mm-hmm. And believe me, I will never say, "Oh my God, Centauri!" in that moment because what you are seeing it is just a fluffy, this very diffuse object mm-hmm. because it is just coming through the atmosphere. Yep. It is when you observe it high in the sky when you realize, "Wow, it really, it is full of stars." Mm, which is why everyone should come to Sydney Observatory in the next month. To see it nice and high up in the sky. Mm-hmm. So it'd be fantastic. Yes, yes. So you mentioned that it has around 10 million stars. Yes. Although the total mass, stellar mass of the Omega Centauri, the globular cluster, it is only 4 million solar masses. Oh, so there must be lots of really small stars in there then. Yes, that is mainly made of really old and red mm. dwarf stars. Ah. Although there are still some few other stars. Of course. Uh, different masses, but the majority of them are this low mass, and that is why they're still shining. Mm. And the other thing it is that we really think it is the remnant of the core of a dwarf galaxy that have been eaten by the Milky Way in the past. Oh, interesting. And I've heard that there's extra evidence of that because there's evidence of a black hole at the center of this thing. Yeah, you're right. It is not confirmed. Not so confirmed. So we have not uh, 
any any astronomer have been able to find that, mm-hmm. but they have been able to put even an estimation of the mass of this black hole, which is very interesting because it is not a supermassive black hole and it is not an stellar black hole. And then we can... Ooh, it's something in between that we haven't found before. Yes, it's something in between. And we can try to invite our listeners to go to the first episode where we were talking about the difference between the supermassive black holes and the, and the stellar mass black holes. So this intermediate mass black hole, it seems that it might have around 12,000 solar masses. Oh, okay. So it is something in in between. But, Mm. you know, perhaps mixing some few of these uh, intermediate mass uh, black holes, it is what are creating the supermassive black holes. Right. Okay, well, good enough so far. So I think that we can start talking about uh, the main theme of this episode. main topic, yes. So what are we going to be talking about? Type 1A supernovae. Type 1A supernovae. I thought we were going to be talking a bit more broadly supernovae. We can, but also a bit more about stargazing live. I want to hear about everything because I was just stuck back in Sydney doing all the radio interviews. (laughs) You were doing all the radio interviews (laughs) while I was just trying to observe for my own research program. And also, as I said before, helping a bit in the organization of the the shows. Mm. So for our... Listeners that are not from Australia, Stargazing ABC was a very interesting TV show that uh, was hosted by famous Australian journalist Julia Semiro from ABC, the Mm. Australian Broadcast uh, Corporation, the public uh, television in Australia, and Professor Brian Cox. My fave. Yeah, I know, I know. And, <laughs> and I have to say that he is a great... Well, both of them are great. But uh, Brian is, is, is really amazing to be able to be talking to him and so close. So you can talk about many different things. And, and although he's starting to be, or he is actually a celebrity here in, in Australia, mm. he is not taking that much. So it's very easy person, So which is good. And I have to thank him again for all the support and the acknowledgements that I got from him regarding all this stargazing ABC and the contribution that I made. But not only that, but also because he actually suggested me, let's go to record a little short video for your son. Oh, that is so cute. So he just took my phone and we did that for almost a minute, just talking to my five years old son about what uh, what astronomy is and that uh, please look do whatever you want to do when you are growing up if you want to be an astronomer try to go there if you want to do another thing just whatever it makes you happy oh i feel like we should have set up a camera for this episode because my face has made many many different facial expressions that cannot be described by the spoken word yeah and i can confirm it right now (laughs) face uh, christian face was changing changing as i was mentioning this (laughs) Anyway, moving away from these personal considerations, so during uh, Stargazing ABC happened uh, two weeks ago, as the moment we are recording this, the mm. 23, 24, 25? 22, 23, 24. Oh, 22, yeah. 23, 24. So it started on my birthday. Ah, yeah, sorry. Yes. Thank you for <laughs> double-checking that, because I'm living in, an, in the day after, <laughs> because I was observing, I was not exactly which day was it. <laughs> Anyway, it was a Tuesday, Tuesday, Wednesday, and, and Thursday. Mm-hmm. It was an hour, during the show was an hour always uh, from 8 to 9 p.m. in uh, prime time in the public Australian television. Mm-hmm. And 
everything was done at Sidon and Spring Observatory and particularly at the Anglo-Australian Telescope, which is part uh, of the Australian Astronomical Observatory. Mm -hmm. that we were using the very same dome and the telescope as the stage yes. for, for all the activities. Although and it looked fantastic, I must say. Oh. Although, although that big blue light on the outside of the dome was a bit of an eyesore. Well, the blue light, I'm not going to mention that in this episode. <laughs> we can talk a bit more about that in the other episode. Mm. The, it was not only blue, it was changing to yellow, reddish, whatever color you wanted to, yep. because they were this kind of LED lights. But yes. yeah, it was a bit of, uh, in an astronomical observatory, mm -hmm. particularly in an astronomical observatory, having this blue light coming shining directly into the dome. Literally the worst light th that we hate. And I can say that while they were doing the test of the lightning outside during the days previous to the show, mm. we could see that light coming in our spectra. Wow. Very <laughs> easily, very strong, very strong blue light that was just contaminating our blue part of the spectra mm. that we couldn't use. I wonder, was it monochromatic? No, it was not monochromatic. No, it wasn't monochromatic. It was a continuum. Right. It was a continuum. Very strong. Very strong. With a bit of, yeah, a couple of peaks in the very in the very blue end, but mm. but it was a strong continuum. Wow. Emission, which, well, interesting. Interesting indeed. Mm. Anyway, after that, there was another little thing happening in ABC2, the Back to Earth, where they were just talking a bit more about the different uh, themes they were discussing during the episode. Mm. They already had some few of little uh, interviews and shots of explaining different aspects of astronomy. That was quite quite interesting. Mm. But at the same time, the idea of the show also as a, something public that is managed by a public entity like the ABC, it is to try to provide something to the public. Yeah. In the sense of motivating the public, citizen science in particular, to do citizen science and to participate in stargazing activities across all the country, which was very good. Mm. And I have to say that it was a huge success because during the second show, there was this new attempt of the world Guinness record of more people observing the sky at the same moment in the same country. Yes. That is Australia beat it again. We, well, mind you, we beat our own record. Yeah, exactly. That mm -hmm. was in 2015. Yes. I remember that first time we beat the record, it was actually, I was involved because it was my first shift at the Sydney Observatory. I was basically thrown into the deep end, like, come on, come to our biggest event we've ever had, and you're going to help out. And, um, yeah, we were, we were a part of it. It was and awesome. That was during National Science Week. That was, yes. 2015 in August. Many of us were also involved in that, and we got around 7,000 people at the same time, which mm -hmm. seems a lot. Well, now, with the new record, it is 40,000 something. 46,000. 46,000. Yes. Wow, much more than what I thought. Okay. That's, we kicked it right out of the park. <laughs> yes, yeah, so more than 150 stargazing parties were organized mm -hmm. across Australia mm. and motivated by a stargazing ABC show. As, as we are saying, it was huge success. Massive, massive success. Very, very happy about it. Yeah, so that was excellent. So congratulations to everyone involved. Mm -hmm. I would like particularly to congratulate uh, Brack Tucker from uh, the ANU, Australian National University, mm -hmm. because he is the, the person in charge of organizing all of this and the person who was chasing to try to beat this again. Oh, amazing. Great job. So well done, Brad. 
So I, I was not involved in that, but as I was saying, I was involved in observing at the AAP. So one of the things that they asked me to do is to try to create a nice image using the Anglo-Australian telescope. Mm -hmm. And that is what we did. We observed a planetary nebula, NGC 5189, a very interesting planetary nebula, low mass star, something like the sun, mm -hmm. that is dying developing this kind of structure, releasing the material into the interstellar space, and in the core you find a white dwarf, a white dwarf star. But NGC 5189, it is one of the few planetary nebula that they don't have a white dwarf star in the center. I'm sorry, what? No, it doesn't have. What's there then? Around, is there something there? Around, yes, it is. There is an object. Yes. I can show it here. It is there. That's in there. Yep. That is the object. It, okay. Yeah, but around 10% of the planetary nebula that we now know don't have a white dwarf star. They have something different, which is a kind of Walraget-like star. Oh, those things. Careful, right. careful, because these are not Walraget stars. Ah. Walraget stars are the latest stages of the most massive stars. Right, that okay. That are developing a kind of a strip tips. Mm -hmm. uh, peeling the external layers of the of the atmosphere, producing this very strong stellar wind, and that is why we can see them also in emission because of the properties that are happening in the atmosphere of the star. Okay, but that only happens to very massive stars. And this was a very low and star. That is a very low mass star. So what's going on here then? Well, that is the thing. We still don't know, don't understand this object very well. Right. Ah, the classic answer. We don't know. No, we, we don't know. <laughs> we don't know. It it has the properties of a Walraget star because mm -hmm. we see this kind of emission lines. Yeah. But we know that the mass of this object it is around one solar masses. Mm, too low. Too low. Only stars more massive than 30, 35 solar masses are able to evolve into the Walraget stage. So these are well, different. That's a lot of mass. That is a lot of mass. Wow. That is why they are very rare in the mm. universe. Also, for giving an extra thing about the Walraget, the classic name of the Lobo Rayado comes from a bad translation from English to Spanish to from Lobo, Wolf, and Rayet. Rayado. Anyway. I, I used to always call them Wolf Riot stars, but I feel like that's definitely starts with the wolf. That is the wolf. That yeah. is the wolf. But this just the surnames of the two astronomers who yes. independently identified these kind of objects in the late 19th century. Mm. Anyway, so it is a very interesting object to observe, and we got a nice image. And I was planned to use the AT during the second show to get the last images to observe it during the show mm. and add to the final image and provide the image not completely obtaining during the show, but at least a few images, a few data taken during the show. However, during the morning on the second show on Wednesday, they decided to change the script. Oh, oh. why did they change the script on hell? Because something happened during the night. What happened? It happened that we confirmed that a transient that was discovered by citizen scientists was a Type 1A supernova. Ooh, no wonder we mentioned Type 1A supernovas before. <laughs> yeah, so that is where they are coming into play. So let me say that again. Mm. The other very interesting uh, idea that they had during the show was to invite uh, the viewers and the public to try to find supernova in distant galaxies. Yes. 
So that was done using one of the Galaxy 2 projects that I recommend everyone to have a look there if mm -hmm. you want to help in citizen science. You could find yourself a Type 1A supernova as well. For sure. They opened this particular project only for the show using images taken with the 1.2 meter sky mapper telescope, mm. which is property of the ENU, the Australian National University. Just a hop, skip and a jump across the mountain? Yes, and it is there at Silent Spring. This telescope, that is a survey machine, have been observing the southern sky for the last few years. They have plenty of data from the archive. Um, the idea was just during the previous two, three weeks, they have been obtaining more images of different parts of the sky. And then the citizen scientists, what they have to do is just compare the two different images. One that was taken three, four years ago, and another that was just taken recently, the last few days before the show. Mm -hmm. And try to see if there was something new in the new image. And that would be a transient. Mm. So if you see a kind of a star-like object that was not there before, you might have discovered a transient and likely it would have been a supernova. Yes. But what type of supernova is the question? But that is the thing. And even though you detect the transient, it still can be a nova or can be a variable star, mm. very weird or whatever. But perhaps even just an asteroid that was crossing there. We can be many different things. Exactly. Anyway, so we always need to confirm this, particularly spectroscopic data. And that is when we enter into the game, because we were asked, as it was my own time observing my program of uh, two of gas-rich galaxies dissecting this object with one of the, for me, best instruments that we have at the AAT, the Koala IFU, Interval Field Unit. They asked us, do you mind to have a quick look? Because here it seems, it seems bright. So, do you mind? And okay, well, I first uh, asked to my two collaborators that were there with me during the show to have Jago Ascasigbar uh, from Madrid and Luis Calvani from uh, the US at the moment, from Pitfoot, to do you mind if we spend 15 minutes, 20 minutes instead of observing our galaxy, just trying to see what, what we have here? Mm. And okay, well, I agree, it seems a very interesting thing to do and helping. Very nice. Okay. So after we finished the object that we were observing that night, it was, I'm talking about perhaps it was around 12, 1, perhaps around 1 a.m. that night. Um, and that I forgot to mention. That is the first night of the show. Mm -hmm. Two hours after the first night of the show, the Citizen Science Program have already got the million classification of galaxies. Wow. That's impressive. That it, is amazing. It was it was very, very fast. Well yeah, done to was. all of the citizen scientists out there that got on board. And that is why four of them, four of the citizen scientists, have identified this, this transient. So we pointed the telescope to this object also because it was going to be set in Zoom. Um, we took an image for acquisition and, okay, there it is. Yes. In the image, we already saw that there was a transient there. Oh, there it is. Little, little spot right there. But... Again, that is not telling us that much. We need the spectroscopic information. So yes. we got the data. It was only 15 minutes or something like that. I think it was 1,000 seconds at the end. Mm. Then we quickly got the data, reduced the data, meaning that we could get it in a sensible way of analyzing them, and there was it. It was very evident to find 
the silicon 2 absorption line, mm. which is the key thing to identify type 1A supernova. Yes. Oh. So we were very excited. We were able to say that uh, the host galaxy, it is at 1.1 billion light years away. And we also were able to estimate that the photosphere of the type 1A supernova of these objects is expanding at 9,500 kilometers per second. Wow. And we wrote a science report. Oh, fantastic. And, which is called a telegram. That, you have it here. Oh my goodness. So, ah. so that is our discovery in this a telegram, which is led by me with my name at the very beginning. And with um, uh, Juiz the second and Jago and then Christine, that Christine figured uh, she is the night assistant at the AAO and she was absolutely essential for doing all of this. So mm. she is wonderful also working with, with her. And then we have the few citizen scientists uh, that I'm going to try to say their names. Lig Barchat, Bob Long, Hayden Roberts, Pete Newling. Uh, after that, Rebecca Smetsud or Becky who was the person who was actually pushing and please, 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 please observing it. Mm -hmm. um, Chris Linton from the University of Oxford, Anais Smaller and Brad Tucker from leading the group at the uh, ANU, who were also in charge of all of that. Um, the last two authors, can you read them? The last author? The last author is none less, none less than uh, Brian Cox and, and Julia Zemiro. <laughs> So now I can say that I have not only one, but two science paper with Brian Cox. That is so cool. And I have to, I have noticed that uh, there's a little note here on your front page of this report from Brian Cox. Unhell, couldn't have done it without you. You're a Zooniverse hero. Oh, that is. And a legend. Wow. <laughs> Oh, <laughs> thank you. <laughs> that is fantastic. Thank you. Well, that, I, I couldn't help myself. So I asked all the collaborators in this paper just to have a sign and I'm going to frame it and put it here in my office. Oh, that's it was, so good. It was very exciting. It was very, very, very exciting moment. I couldn't, we couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe it. I feel so, like after this episode, we need to go on a trip to Officeworks and just get lots of frames. Yeah, frames, yes. <laughs> that would be, it would be good. So that it is. I was not expecting doing that, although I was providing the videos and the time-lapse that I didn't mention it, also mm. provide a time-lapse of the sky over the Silent Spring Observatory. Please Google it. Stargazing at Silent Spring Observatory. It's amazing. And thank you. As all of them are. And, uh, and the images and the documentation and whatever. Uh, we did this together. And, well, it was absolutely amazing. And that was the reason why, as we printed some few of the copies of this uh, piece of paper to let everyone know around the observatory because there were around 150 people working for this show there. Wow. <laughs> Plenty of people. The lodge would have been very busy. Yeah, it was very busy. To, they decided, well, we have to say this. Mm. And that is why they decided, okay, let's go to don't do, because the image is good enough for, mm. for this, and let's go to center in the discovery of the type 1A supernova. And, and change that. the entire script because of the science that you and those, and your collaborators and the citizen scientists did. Wow. Wow. You, you changed the course of Stargazing Live ABC. Yep. Although I was never mentioned in the show. Angel Lopez Sanchez, the great leader. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, I, I knew how these things work, so that, that, that's okay. 
The funny part is that it doesn't stop there. Mm. There is a second part. Because the second night, Ooh. the second night, more people were participating mm-hmm. in this classification of supernova. And Amazing. Trying to find. And then it was not for 10 citizen scientists who reported a bit fainter object mm-hmm. in another galaxy, but it, it also might have been another supernova. Yes. Okay, well, they came back to us. Do you mind to have a look to the telescope again to this object? <laughs> My friends and collaborator Jago and Juiz look at me saying, hello, are we going to lose again the time? We have plenty of observation to do. We are already losing half of the night because we have all the lights on at mm. the dawn and we cannot observe. And I said, mm, yeah, but uh, it is only 15 minutes, 20 minutes. Let's go to have a look. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Well, we repeat it. So we go, finish our object, go to this new galaxy. And that was it. The transient was there, mm-hmm. much fainter than the, the one that we discovered the previous night. Yep. But there was it. Took another exposure and reduced the data. When I reduced the data and have a quick look, well, I couldn't find anything really evident from mm-hmm. there. So we knew where it was, but uh, as it was fainter, the signal to noise, the quality of the spectrum was much lower and yep. it was not that easy to see. Mm. So, well, it was already 4, 4.30. I was exhausted. I was really <laughs> exhausted. How many cups of coffee, coffee were you in uh, that night? I don't know, five, six. I, oh, just, wow. I just lost count. But in that moment, uh, after all the craziness of observations and events and so on, I just wanted to go to bed and <laughs> take it easy. Also because in two days I have to drive back to Sydney and it yep. was not. it is not safe if you are not sleeping that much. No. <laughs> And I was about to leave, I'm actually leaving the AT control room when suddenly Juiz uh, just jumped from the chair and said, Hey, here it is. It is another Type 1A supernova. Oh my God. But I thought, come back to my seat, open the laptop again, let's go to prepare the report, let's go to do that. And there was it. The second confirmation of ah. another Type 1A supernova. Amazing. So this one, um, it is so it was in, an, in another galaxy much closer to us, only 945 million light years away. Oh, only. Only. And um, I, I didn't mention that the previous supernova, the supernova, the first supernova that we discovered the first night, was just in the peak of the emission of the light. So oh, it perfect. was only around perhaps three days after the maximum of the light. Yep. But this one was around three weeks after the maximum of the of the light. So okay, it was just, so a bit a bit lower. Yes, a bit lower. That mm. is also why even being a bit uh, closer to us, it was much fainter. Yes. Because it was just, uh, the, the, the light was less just intense. less intense. Mm-hmm. But there it was, the there feature is. of the silicon too, which was basically the only thing that we could really got from, yep. from this spectrum, but there was it. And we did the same. We classified the, the object, we wrote a report, and we published a second science report with the discovery. Again, with Brian Cox and Julia Samiro as <laughs> co-authors in this study. Amazing. Oh, that's fantastic. What a cool time. Yeah, so it was really, really exciting. I will say that it have been one of the best experiences that I have ever had mm. observing. It was very good, very exciting, and I was saying, and, and also a surprise, because I was not expecting to be doing that. I was expecting to be doing other things, helping on other things as I was doing, mm. but not contributing to that. It was interesting, because later, the, in the last show, 
Chris Linton, that he was providing the information about the citizen science project mm -hmm. during the show, mm. was using the two determination on the supernova, Type 1A supernova, with the new distances to add into the estimation of the age of oh. the universe. Oh, right. I remember hearing about this, that... Um you worked out the age of the universe. So what is the current age of the universe based on those supernovae? The numbers that they got at the end about the age of the universe, we know that it is probably 13.8 billion years. But you can start putting decimals there. So mm. the number that they got was 13,798,150,576 years. Wow. It's a very accurate. No, but of course it has plenty of uncertainty. But the funny oh, yes. part, and it was just for the show, it was that the, with respect to the difference of, of the years with respect to the estimation of the age of the universe, it is only 533,912 years. Hmm. So only using these two supernova, they were able to estimate with this accuracy wow. the age of the universe. That is very impressive. So changing that. And that was just using this data that at the end, and I want to emphasize that, the key thing here, it is not that we confirm that they were type 1A supernova. Mm. Very excited about that, of mm. course. But the key thing was that citizen scientists, people, that they are watching that night the TV, mm. and they were engaged because they were talking about you can help scientists to try to understand better the universe and to identify supernova, type 1A supernova. They did it. Some of them found transients, mm. found objects that they could have been type 1A supernova, and they were. And they were. And now those citizen scientists are co-authors of a scientific paper. Yes, that's right. Because that had been us here. That is pretty amazing. Mm -hmm. Well, uh, I... Well, We've gone on for quite a while, actually. Yeah, but yeah. Um, I think you are right. We are not going to be talking about supernovas in general because it is enough. So we can leave the supernovas in general for another episode. Yes. We have been talking a bit about type 1A supernova. Mm -hmm. And more generally about stargazing live and amazing presence from Unhell. And just having a good old time talking about citizen science and appreciating what you can do at home for scientists like ourselves. Remember that astronomy, it is one of the few sciences that you really can help in the research. Mm. The sky is open to everybody, and we have said this some few times in, in the scientists. This is why we have our WhatsApp section, really. That is one of the reasons why we have the WhatsApp section. But even though there are many projects that you can help and participate Sometimes using your own observations, using your own amateur telescopes. Mm. Sometimes using the citizen science projects that you can collaborate and help scientists and astronomers to understand better the universe. And that is, from my personal point of view, a great thing. Because you are involved in the excitement of the science discovery and science research and just going a bit, little step further understanding our nature, and the cosmos. Mm. That's a pretty good place to stop on. Yes. What, a, what a great quote, quoting Angel Lopez Sanchez. That. So, we are good for now. We are going to record another episode in a moment. Yes. Although we will release it next week. Mm -hmm. So, just stay tuned. And 
the feedback that we will get from this uh, after this episode we will not it, it will not be possible to be included in the new episode but we will try to include all of that when we are back after the break in August for season two for season two of the scientist Yuppie. <laughs> all right well uh well we'll be talking in uh, after our lunch break but you will hear us in a week's time okay well good sky enjoy the night sky have a look to oh my god centauri mm-hmm. <laughs> and don't forget just to en- enjoy everything that is there in the sky for us That's right. Thanks, guys. See you next week. Bye. See you. Bye-bye.